Sisu and these qualities, they're all as factory settings within every single human. And that's where our mindset comes into play. And positivity for a great part is a mindset. You know, it's like, what do we cultivate? What are the thoughts? And everything to me always leads back to our thinking. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey guys, it is RJ Singh here from the Ultra Habits Podcast, and I want to thank you for joining us for another show today. Today, we have Amelia Lati on our episode of the Ultra Habits Podcast. Amelia is an awarded Finnish educator, author, and the founder and CEO of Sisu Lab, a company that helps people in organizations and teams access the full expression of their life force. She's an international presenter on the topics of courage, compassion, creativity, and authentic relating and teamwork. And she works one-on-one with professionals and executives committed to excellence and leadership as a pathway to awakening. Amelia holds previous master's degrees in social psychology and applied positive psychology, the latter which she obtained are the mentorships of Drs. Martin Seligman and Angela Duckworth. She's also a certified ultra running coach. In her PhD, Amelia is pioneering the research on the Finnish construct of Sisu, which is about accessing latent reserves of energy in the face of extraordinary adversity. She's also the author of the upcoming book, Gentle Power, A Revolution in How We Think, Lead, and Succeed. Amelia's work has been featured by The New Yorker, Business Insider, BBC, and Forbes, among others. Hope you enjoy the show, guys. Let me know what you think. Keen for your feedback, as always. So, Amelia, I was hoping that you could define Sisu for us. What is it? And can you contrast between Sisu and concepts like grit, resilience, and perseverance, please? Yeah, thanks, RJ. And it's so beautiful to be here with you in this moment and to talk about my favorite subject. (laughs) So, yes, Sisu is a curious concept. It's, um, it adds something to our dialogue in not just in an academic sense, you know, I'll do the, I'll distinguish between those concepts, which is more kind of like in the research part where we want to draw these lines, but also just in personal use. Um, Sisu can really give us this conceptual handle, so to speak, to grab when we're going into and going through some really, really tough challenges in our lives. So a Sisu is an ancient Finnish concept and its roots go back hundreds of years. And the etymology of the word, it, it comes from a word Sisus. So Sisu is spelled S-I-S-U. And then you add an S to the end and it makes Sisus, which literally means the intestines or the gut or the interior, you know, of something. And um, so Sisu refers to this kind of fortitude and quality that resides very, very deep within us. And you could call it guts. And it is a strength that we draw upon in moments when we feel that we have gone through our um, observed mental or physical capacities, when we feel that we have come to the end limit of what we 
think we're capable of doing. And then when we stay with it a little longer, we don't give up. What often happens, and I hear people reporting this, and I think this is probably familiar to most of your listeners, is, is that there's almost this like extra spare tank of energy that is unlocked or found. And the peculiar thing with Sisu is that it's exactly in the moments of adversity or crisis or tragedy where we will forge a pathway into this power or force. So it's not something that we would be tapping into on randomly on regular days, you know, or you don't get a parking spot near enough to the grocery store and you feel a little bit uh, bothered by it, you know, so Sisu is not that stuff. Sisu is really going into the dark, dark forest, you know, and when things are really, really hard, um, you could call it the dark night of the soul sometimes. It doesn't need to be that intense necessarily, but it is an intestinal internal fortitude that we can tap on when, we, when it seems like there's nothing else uh, we have left within us. And so the most significant difference between these other concepts that you mentioned, RJ, is that those concepts are all, um, they have to do with our cognitive um, qualities and reserves. So they're more to do with willing something into being or willing our way through something. So grit, which is researched by my um, previous mentor, Angela Duckworth, um, who is a super, super brilliant scholar, um, research professor at University of Pennsylvania. And she has pioneered the research on grit and grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals so it's putting in the work day in day out you have a goal you put in the needed action and effort um, to make it a reality and so um, it has to do with having some kind of an end goal it has to do with having some kind of a reward or a vision at the end with sisu it's not so much about okay there's this reward at the end sisu is really about um, forging something out of nothing, you know, or it's about making it through the day or making it through the breath or the moment, you know, or the heartbeat. Um, perseverance, sister concept, it's actually um, quality that goes, um, is part of grit as well. So it's about being able to endure on the long run, you know, go through setbacks, go through frustration when it feels like, ah, this is really not, um, you know, that the road is very, very long. So you could say that Sisu begins where perseverance ends, you know, that's one way of kind of looking at it. Um, plus that perseverance is a cognitive quality. Sisu is more like what I would call it as having researched it now since 2013, early year, is um, Sisu is more like the embodied or somatic equivalent of mental toughness so it is that visceral intestinal toughness that we have um, and then we have other concepts like hardiness as well which again relates to more like um, how we consciously process things and resilience which is a very interesting concept and topic in these times is our quality and ability to bounce back from adversity so before we get our head back above the surface which is kind of that quality of resilience you know to bounce back and uh, adapt to difficulty and tragedy and trauma underneath before we get back to the surface there's this huge um, effort that has to be made that we we go back to the surface you know it's that uh, well we're still not quite there so sisu is that power that allows us to get closer enough to the surface that we can oh, pop our head back there and then 
we can engage again, you know, back to these like resilience and perseverance. So CISO is a place where we visit, you know. Hmm. Does this answer your question? <laughs> yeah, that it, it, look, it, it's a beautiful summation, Amelia. And I know that with language, it can be quite difficult to articulate subtleties, especially when you're translating something from Finnish to English. And I think that was beautifully articulated. Something that's come up for me right now actually is, what would you, what would your view be on Sisu's relationship to flow? Mm. So I've looked into that, especially in the beginning part of the research and it felt already then like a very um, organic and natural connection. And it's Mihai, Jixen Mihai's concept that he has researched pretty much all of his uh, research career. And I got to meet Mihai uh, last year at his home university in uh, California. And so kind of the closest connection point I put there is that the concept of flow that Mihai is talking about, it also relates to this almost like a mysterious quality that we humans have, that we're able to go into a place where time disappears where we align our skills um, with the task at hand, but not just kind of like, here's what I can do, but you really take it to the uh, furthest end of your um, comfortable way of doing it while yet challenging yourself. So you're not going to be in flow if it's too hard, where you're really having to go into that... um, like heavy lifting in, internally, but also you're not going to get into flow if the task is too easy. So there's similarity there with Sisu, you know, that it's Sisu also carries this um, mysterious quality to it. So that's where the link is with the, myst- the mystic part of it, that it's really accessing a quality within us where, how to best put words into this, where we are able to draw from something within us that is is greater than we would normally be able to kind of um, express, I guess. It, would you say the external environment needs to pull that out of us or we can spark that proactively? Stephen Kotler, because mm-hmm. we're talking about flow, mm-hmm. has this view that we could ignite flow yeah. in basic tasks. I tend to disagree and to your point around it the you know he talks about base jumpers going into a state of flow well i would i would surmise that they're in a heightened state of awareness because of their survival instinct kicking in and maybe something prehistoric is going on there what's your view on whether or not sisu can be activated purposefully or does the external environment need to draw that out of us Ah, the answer is kind of a yes and a no. Um, so, because it's partially involuntary, you know, it's like, because it has to do with so much of our, um, the fears that we carry with us, you know, it has to do with our past, previous ex- uh, experiences. If we could ignite Sisu, um, you know, Sisu on demand, I think that's kind of one of those $1 million, billion dollar questions, you know, then we would kind of turn into gods and goddesses, right? You know, if we could just like snap our fingers and hear Sisu, this intestinal explosive fire in the belly, we could do anything, you know? So it doesn't quite seem to go like that. But what Sisu, what happens is that ordinary 
men and women, girls and boys, you know, are able to express Sisu in those tough moments. Um, and I think part of that, you know, where it is somehow invoked by our actions is that we can also consciously put ourselves in, in situations where we know that we're going to be challenged. You know, for example, um, in the past, I've done all kinds of ex excursions to test Sisu and really research it from within and running very long lengths, you know, long ultra marathons and things. So I know I will be challenged and I know that the moment of Sisu will come. So it's me allowing myself to be brave enough to go into a space where I'm challenged. But even a more interesting part of this, I'll just add, is, and what I'm really passionate about, is the Sisu that not only lives within you and within me, but it's the Sisu that lives in the in-between space of you and I, you know? And from research into psychological safety, for example, we know that uh, from Barbara Fredrickson, who has researched uh, positive emotions, such as you know, trust, curiosity, um, joy. But what she has noticed is that when people experience these emotions, their um, cognitive capacities, they broaden and they build. So we're able to access more into that um, cognitive um, strata that we have. And the same thing goes with these qualities that for example, perseverance, um, grit, and I would put Sisu there as well, is that when we feel a certain level um, of safety, uh, when we are with humans who know that they are going to support us, that they have our back, it adds something to us where we are more likely to take the crazy talent challenge. You know, We're more likely to be able to tap into something within us when we feel like we have no breaths left. If you think of Viktor Frankl, who mm. wrote the beautiful book, Man's Search of Meaning, he went through extreme uh, experiences at the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp. And what he found that those men and women who had some kind of a sense of purpose, you know, maybe it was that they were in their heart still longing and having such faith that they will see their beloveds, you know, that gave them that strength to go through extreme ex situation, situations. So you're talking about faith, trust and hope? I'm putting them, bundling them to as positive emotions, but yes, to be more specific, I think hope, for example, is powerful. It's the spark plug of all action. You know, if we don't have hope, it's like, it's almost like we're lacking oxygen from the fire. <laughs> That's an interesting point because I can definitely see how psychological safety and that striving towards hope can give us that second wind. I would ask on the flip side, in a scenario where our back's against the wall and we feel there is no way through, but by our own design, mm. could that actually spark Sisu too? Because it's a survival mechanism that might kick in or what, what's your view on that? Absolutely. Yes. You are there at the heart of it. So Sisu, Sisu is the most default setting there is in a human. You know, when we look back at our collective history and how we have overcome and survived, it's really that coding uh, in our DNA, in our psyche, that um, pulls us to take the next step and next breath. I mean, life does not wither away easily, as we have seen so many times. 
it, it's such an interesting piece because reflecting on myself, I would say that somewhere along the line, I became addicted to the feeling of being within that at within adversity. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, I think, and I, I wonder what your view is on this. I think you would agree that mm-hmm. on the flip side, we, for those of us that kind of like to put ourselves through adversarial situations, part of the journey may also be becoming comfortable being kind of not engaged in a process like that. So what I'm saying is what I've found is when I'm not engaged in adversarial situations, I start to feel like I'm not truly living. And that I think is a problem. I think I, for me personally, the journey has been also about becoming okay with the ordinary and mundane parts of life. Does that make sense to you? Oh, RJ, it makes so much sense. And I've gone through both sides of the spectrum and kind of having to reconcile with, you know, how to integrate those two polarities in me. And I think, you know, most people who would listen to a podcast called Ultra Habits (laughs) maybe have, you know, a tendency and the ability to endure quite uh, demanding situations in their lives. You know, it's it's a capacity and a reserve and we differ in in our expression of that so most of my life that I lived I've been I've always kind of had this beautiful quality that I don't look into the troubles and I don't look into what could go wrong but I go into the excitement and the beauty and awe of the challenge you know which has allowed me to do all kinds of extraordinary things and live through them and learn from them Um, But I also noticed at some point that, you know, why does it have to be so extreme? You know, what are the other polarities and the the other polarity and the other sides to me? And I think it also is partially tied to our personality. It's tied to our temperament. It's tied to developmental phases. As I am approaching 40, I noticed that there's more curiosity and more uh, priority in my life going into finding ground and finding root, mm-hmm. um, which of course doesn't mean that uh, I wouldn't do such intense things, but the quality of those intense things tends to shift. And then the challenge becomes, how do I sit with myself in silence and sometimes just observe observe what is going on around me? And sometimes, you know, the most courageous thing and the thing that takes the most sisu is for example, to quit something, you know, in a, in a culture, like I am from Finland, we grew up with this concept of Sisu and it's weaved into our national psyche that, you know, you have to power on. And if you show a sign of weakness, you know, it's, it's kind of sometimes influences your um, uh, witness status in, in a negative way. So that's the sa- downside of Sisu as well, which is why I always speak so much about the power and necessity of benevolence and compassion, because we can't build societies where it's all about powering on and pushing, because we are not machines, we are humans who have feelings, who have layers, multitudes. And by sometimes saying no to a task that we have started, and there's a lot even invested, but when we start realizing that it's hurting us, 
it's hurting me, it's hurting my family. I'm forcing it. You know, when the power turns to force, that's a tricky spot because we don't always recognize it, but it's a key moment also to our growth, you know, to be able to be mature um, Cecil warriors, you know, not just splashing out that power everywhere, but really knowing how to use it and when to use it. And that's maturity and that's wisdom. And those are a beautiful combination. Yeah, it's um, so true. You know, one of the reasons I was so interested in you and the conversations we always have are like mm. straight to the deep part of the well, yeah. uh, which is great. But one of the reasons I was really intrigued by your story is the fact that you didn't just choose to research something, you chose to live it. And I think that more researchers should do that because I feel the depth of your understanding and your ability to relate that is not built on observation, it's built on existential experience. And I love that. And uh, so I just wanted to say that because for, for those that may not know, um, maybe you can just briefly talk about what you, uh, what you did in New Zealand in terms of your run. I'm sure our audience would love that, being a lot of them are, are endurance athletes, no doubt. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, there's a place for everything in science, really. It's, um, we need all the data because so, the human experience is so vast. So we need the measurement, we need the, like really being in the lab and understanding. And then it just happened to be so that my path um, is such that I really, the data that comes from is from the existential inquiry. And it's, uh, it's called hermeneutic phenomenology is the um, approach that I'm using or first person inquiry, wow. it's the qualitative method. And it's really also a way of life, you know, so everything becomes the research. And of course, when you're doing it under the scientific um, rigor, it means that you're going through a process where you are tracking everything and you are critically examining it. So it's not just kind of like writing an autobiography. Um, but so, yeah, first of all, I found this research topic through a personally experienced tragedy and trauma so it didn't just kind of come to me as like oh I'm interested in this I've always had an interest toward psychology and the human mind so that's the starter but when I was living in New York City and this is now 10 and a half years ago and um, I was in a relationship that was first emotionally very abusive but then it also became physically extremely abusive and I nearly lost my life in that uh, situation and then when the relationship was over, uh, my boyfriend got deported from the U.S. and I started this long journey to healing. So what happened was I really started asking this question that how did I survive and how am I surviving? How am I able to begin anew and mend after such a trauma and break of trust, you know, in an intimate relationship? And, and um, and I also realized what a massive global unspoken issue it is. And it, and it covers all forms of abuse. You know, it's uh, also at the office, you know, you know, when we don't allow people their full expression, we're pushing other people down. And it's uh, what we really need is our cultures of compassion where we respect one another. So it's a, it's a very, very broad concept. But 
so it took me asking to ask these questions on how do humans overcome extreme adversity and that really truly is the number one and the first question with which i came into this journey now that i've been on since 2013 really as a researcher and um and there is a concept from psychology that i do want to mention because i think it might be very uh enticing to many of our listeners and it is called this concept of post-traumatic growth uh, it's uh, coined the term is coined by researcher Richard Tedeschi if someone wants to find a couple of research papers so instead of just the post-traumatic stress that we keep hearing about there's an other side to the coin where what Richard noticed as a clinical psychologist that when people go through extreme adversities and then with enough time resources they start healing they don't merely come back to the base level that they grow often in in just stunning ways and there is this clarification of our life goals there's this deepening of our sense of meaning and purpose a deepening of a sense of compassion for other people and their suffering so i went through a massive divider like that so there's life po post-trauma and there's life uh, pre-trauma for me uh, before and after and that led me on this uh, adventure where first I, I quit the job that I was in. I didn't really find meaning in that anymore. I was working for the Finnish government in New York. And I got accepted to this master's program by the founder of the field of positive psychology, Martin Seligman. He was a master's in that um, applied form of psychology. And I got into... Sisu naturally came to me because it's from my own native culture. And there was no research on it even though we've had it for hundreds of years. And so that became a path. And then at some point, as we veer into these less known spaces of our, our psyche and soul, and when we surrender to this more intimate dialogue with her and him, and it can start asking questions from us, you know? And the question for me, from my soul was that, okay, Amelia, you're researching this quality that relates to determination and courage and this fire of the heart and soul and belly like, but you haven't done the most courageous thing in your life so I was put on the spot you know and for me it was to tell my story back in the day like how it happened and open up about the uh, the relationship and because I carried so much shame around it you know um, and the shame should never be on the victim and so I shared the story and that opened a whole new path. I ended up founding a nonprofit called Sisu Not Silence, which is to, about the idea to, to break the silence around these, um, all these topics that we carry shame around and that um, put us in this internal prison. And for that, I wanted to do the most audacious, badass thing I could possibly imagine to kickstart the nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And I was reminded of a dream that I had had, not, you know, like I was having a nap sometime in 2011. And in that dream, I was running across this beautiful green country. And I knew somehow the dream that it was New Zealand. And I was carrying a flag for everyone who's ever gone through uh, situations like, like uh, abuse. I never thought I would actually go and implement or manifest something like that. But, you know, um, at that point, I was reminded of the dream. And, you know, in the beginning, it truly never occurred to me that I shouldn't do it. Uh, it's 2000, the goal was 1,500 miles. So 2,400 or so kilometers. 
uh, in 50 days. It was an arbitrary number that came to my mind, the 50 days uh, to run it. So it's 50 ultra marathons in 50 days. I was not an athlete at the time. I had previous background in having run one marathon 10 years before that, and then one marathon five years or something before that, and then had a pretty sedentary year and a half leading up to it. And so it seemed like an impossible dream to go into such thing. And, and there were coaches who said that, Amelia, you literally physically can't do that because you're not an ultra endurance athlete. Like your ligaments won't hold, first of all. And the thought in my mind, and this is where we come to the period for Sisu as well, because in addition to being this internal fortitude, Sisu is also what I call an action mindset. It's in my research paper uh, that anyone can go. It's open access. Uh, you'll find it with embodied fortitude. Uh, it will come up with just with that and we can just download it. And so that's one of the three um, themes that I described there for CISO, which is action mindset, which means to lean into, it's having a consistent, courageous approach toward challenges. It's that thing that happens when we go into, you know, it's uphill, it's the headwind. That is the tendency we have to shy away and turn back almost like as a reflection or do we lean in? And people with Sisu, a high amounts of it, they tend to go in. You could even call this, you know, maybe it has something to do with the dopamine receptor D4, uh, DRD4, which has been identified with people who are entrepreneurs, for example, that they have this um, ability to kind of dive in and it's very natural for them. So I've had that always. And so I didn't really start questioning myself, the first thing, but the uh, thing that came to my mind was, well, there's only one way to find out and it is to try it and go into the experience. And I trained for it in two years. We fundraised for it to organize events in each city to talk about compassionate cultures. And, and it turned to be one of the adventures of my lifetime, 50 deaths and 50 rebirths, I would call them. <laughs> Amelia, that is, yeah, it was an amazing journey. And you touched on something that I really want to talk about this whole piece on, um, micro actions in perpetuating positivity and what that actually means? Well, um, I like, I like your concept, the micro actions. Um, and for more than, yeah. And we can say positivity because uh, positivity and positive attitude is actually one of the most researched qualities that we can associate with resilience and our ability to, um, keep on going when it's tough because positivity means that we're able to reach out and reach into some kind of idea in the future um, and then start moving towards it I think was Aristotle said something like the soul never dreams or thinks without an image something like that the soul never thinks without an image and being able to tap into that positive reserve within us again it goes into that barbara frederickson's topic of being able to access more of those cognitive qualities that we have within us already we all have them so there is really no i'm not super keen on this idea of speaking about superhumans um as in like some people are just somehow so superior That's because right. sisu and these qualities they're all as factory settings within every single human. And that's where our mindset comes into play. And positivity for a great part is a mindset. You know, it's like, what do we cultivate? What are the thoughts? 
and everything to me always leads back to our thinking how do we frame things one practical way to um, work on our thinking if we notice that we have negative patterns you know that we immediately go into the what could go wrong um, is called uh, positive reappraisal that we can take any situation that comes our way and change our perspective just a little bit you know it doesn't have to be something so extreme and personally i can't even do this you know go from fear or uh anxiety into excitement and happiness i mean it rarely works like that and you know and that might be a superpower if anyone has that but what i often do is okay i can ask myself that what can i learn from this situation i can rather easily now switch from fear to curiosity like i can open a little tiny thread under the door for that and that allows my mind to come out of this downward spiral which is the opposite of having the optimistic i like to use the word optimism before positivity because it's a little bit less kind of polarizing because positivity for me goes into that happiness thing and we don't need to be experiencing exuberant feelings of happiness to be able to be high functioning and go through these experiences um there's actually quite a lot of research on the difference between happiness and meaning and to those listeners who have who are parents you know uh, this might uh come you know ring a bell is that in one of these research um papers and studies that i read parents uh oftentimes report at, especially at some points of the growth curve of the child or the baby quite low um um levels of happiness but they report high levels of meaning so there's a difference between these Mm. Uh, dynamics of mm. that that's that's a really interesting piece there that what gives us meaning doesn't necessarily always make us functionally happy in the moment right that's that's so interesting yeah i was oh, definitely yeah sorry i was definitely like in new zealand because it was such a long long uh, journey to you know and for the ultra runners and ultra people there it's really the first day when i started i had to already think about my recovery not just the next day or the next week but next month so and that is a principle also what the person with mature inner fire and mature sisu will do is that we don't just blast everything out but there's a part of our consciousness who's kind of you know an algorithm that's tracking like what's the healthy level of sisu you know where is the place where we still you know there's aliveness because again as i mentioned earlier that the line between healthy sisu and then when it becomes force and this is a very familiar concept from taoism for those who are familiar with it is to allow our lives to align with that what naturally is alive but and it's called uwe in in taoism which is called the action of no, no action or effort of no effort which is a little bit misleading as a translation because there's nothing passive about uwe it's really surrendering full on to the flow but it's never forceful and that's where oftentimes people with high levels of sisu can damage themselves that you know we we you know someone once said that there's two troubles with humans that we don't know how to get started and then we don't know how to stop 
<laughs> I definitely like that. And, and this whole, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. And I think that we could definitely overdo it. And I think that I, again, to the, you know, the piece earlier, for me, the harder thing many times is doing nothing at all. And I too am approaching 40. And I think that maybe it's something that's kind of indicative of where I'm at. Yeah. So kind of back to babies and children, um, which is always such a lovely topic, you know. Um, isn't it so curious and interesting as when we're born into this world and we have our caretaker, you know, and then when the baby, you know, she or he is feeling or expressing distress and she starts crying and is cranky, the first thing that the mother or father does is not that uh, it doesn't go and ask the baby, like, how are you doing? You know, it's, it's like it doesn't go into psychoanalysis about it. But the mother or the father immediately first checks that has the baby been sleeping? Has he been eating? Um, the, are the nappies wet? You know, so we start our lives by being very embodiedly attuned and also cared for. And those connections within us to recognize our bodily sensations are, are naturally affirmed. But then something happens, you know, we start getting into in our growth, uh, into the space of more of the cognitive, you know, things start to become more about the mind, which technically, you know, we could bring in the, in, in the um, Cartesian mind body um, divide, divide here, which whenever we start elevating something at the expense of the other quality, we go into a place of imbalance. And that's kind of where we are right now. As, as cultures is that we have um, elevated the mind at the expense of the body. Whereas in the world of the mind and body, you know, there are no distinctions like that. They're working in pure systemic, um, organic, super organic kind harmony. You know, there's no competition, which one is better. But we as humans, we have elevated the mind so much that we've lost in touch with what happens in the body. And it's, it might even be a new thing for some of the listeners that we have a brain in our gut, you know? I mean, it's getting, finally, it's more common. And, uh, but still like 10 years ago, I don't think a lot of people knew about it. For me, I think I heard about it in 2012 the first time. And yet I've been living with this, with this uh, gut brain my entire life. And it's actually, uh, evolutionarily, it's the first brain that ev evolves and develops. And why it's called the brain is because it, its structure, it resembles the brain that we have on, uh, in our skull, you know, and it has the hundred uh, million neural connections and it's alive, it's transmitting information. And one of the in interesting pieces of knowledge that we know from um, research is that the, the highway, uh, the neural highway, the vagus nerve, um, which is also connected to our the rest and digest, you know, and the, the part of us that uh, we feel peaceful. And we can actually activate the vagus nerve, by the way, when we want to find more calmness. It goes, it runs on our left side. It's the 10th cranial nerve. It's on the left side of our body. And what I do sometimes when I feel very agitated or anxious, I can simply put my hand on my left shoulder and just tenderly squeeze myself a little bit and just say, it's okay, you know. If that allows us physically neurally to calm ourselves and that's the vagus nerve and the piece that i was about to share was that 
the information going between the brain in our skull and then the gut brain traditionally we've thought that the brain calls all the shots you know and it's the control deck and command center but what research has actually found is that 80 percent of all the information on that vagus nerve highway is going from the gut to the brain which kind of puts um information delivery wise the gut actually in a superior position not that we want to go into then in the future elevating the gut over everything else but the point is to bring balance to it and the curious thing about it is what we're learning from research is that well how does nutrition influence you know the gut health the gut flora and the fauna there's been research where um they took um the gut um material from, from timid line of mice like timid mice and they planted it inside um, a lineage of, mal- uh, of mice that were very courageous and bold. And what happened was that those, ma- those mice became very timid and fearful. So what we have going on there in the gut and the kind of nutrition we put in, what we eat, it can have huge influences also in our, let's say, experienced levels of courage in your sisu. So I don't have the research on that yet or I don't, that's not my uh, line that I would do. So we don't have the research on that yet, but that will be very, very interesting when we get to those questions and topics. It's a, it's a, it's a big issue because, you know, I would say as a species, we're one of the few, if only species to have this element of ego, which separates us not only from our body, but nature. And the challenge we're having as societies is society in successful societies are predicated generally on humanity conquering environments and competing. And and I know that there's a shift in human awareness is increasing. It's imperative mm. for the for the success of our species and continuity of our species, not just on an individual level as you and I are talking about, but on a collective level. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And my body resonated to the word when you said that it's imperative. Like I really felt a deep yes to it, that it is not just something, you know, that's going to be good for us as a humanity to find that way. How do we reconcile, you know, the human family and what's going on and, you know, to, find a way how we realize that we are part of a large massive ecosystem and it is not just good for us it is imperative it's a necessity you know and so finding more of the tools that allow us because it starts with every single human we can't kind of get past ourselves you know I won't feel connected to you or someone else before I am connected to myself and that's kind of beautiful because I carry my research lab with me everywhere I go. Like I'm always at the center of that thing. And it also is the birth of personal responsibility. You know, that I, as, um, as nice as it might feel sometimes to escape that responsibility and point fingers at others, may it be some kind of authority, you know, may it be, you know, another human or a system that will actually not get me anywhere, but me you know doing the things that i need to do 
with regards to my developmental stage, that's where the, the beauty lies and the potential and the opportunity. Amelia, what is learned helplessness? I found that concept fascinating and how can we actually work to improve our narratives? Yeah. So learned helplessness in a way, and this is not an official statement, but kind of intuitively, I would even say like, it's kind of there at the opposite spectrum of Sisu, you know, like if the other end is action mindset, you know, that you have a sense of autonomy and you feel um, that you can influence your future. So learned helplessness is the other, um, is the opposite. And it was first, the concept was coined by Dr. Martin Seligman, who's the founder of positive psychology as well. And I think it was already back in the 70s, 1970s, and it was his breakthrough research. What they learned is that um, that humans and animals, when they are in a situation where they start feeling like that their actions don't matter, that if you try something, it doesn't really create a ripple um, in your environment and nothing changes, well, they, they start refraining from even trying. And many of these kinds of mental, these mindsets of... Um, of um, I'm, I'm lacking uh, an English word right now, but um, of inferiority, you know, and um, lack of um, self-efficacy come into play. And then we stop trying. Yeah, that's, uh, that is a, that's a huge one. Mm. It really is. And, and I think narratives are, are so important. I think that when I'm talking to an individual and I'm looking at their capacity, I'm really trying to unpick their narrative and where they're at. And that will tell me their capacity for growth at that moment in time. I would like to talk about William James. I am a massive fan. I came across his work uh, when I first got sober around this piece on second wind. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah. And so William James is one of my spiritual muses, you know, like that's the energy that I really, really just enjoy. And I love that you mentioned his name because I just thought of him 10 seconds ago. And so William James, he, um, he was a philosopher, pragmatist. Um, the, he's often quoted as being the founder of American psychology or the Western psychology. And one of the books that I would recommend to any listener, because he wrote these massive, massive um, books that are hundreds and hundreds of pages, which can be quite tedious to go through. But there's a book specifically that speaks to me and it's around this topic of second wind and you can download it as a PDF and it's called The Energies of Men. Um, and so I would definitely recommend that one. And William James, so he was a Harvard scholar and a professor. I think he got accepted to Harvard like at the age of 12 or something like that. And uh, he lived a really, his own life was not easy at all. He went through these massive bouts of depression and, um, and all kinds of things, but he was a very caring um, soul. And he was constantly on this path of experimenting uh, and experiential research and he, what, what comes to my mind constantly now, so I'll just, I'll bring that. So there's a line from one of his research papers where he speaks about this topic of second wind and this energy that we all have that can be accessed 
through crisis, really. And he also says, and he kind of refers to this topic of learned helplessness, which is maybe why I started thinking about William James, um, where we become kind of flat, that we don't even go near the um, our potential with life force and energy. Uh, and our lights are dampened, you know, we're kind of just like fiddling around with this power that we have. And there's a line that speaks to me, which is that we need to get rid of the habit of inferiority to our full selves. The habit of inferiority to our full selves. And there's a key word there, which is that a habit, you know, it's not a quality or an essence that someone is not good at something or um, someone lacks Sisu or anything. It's kind of like in learned helplessness. There's the word it's learned through life experiences at some point we form a narrative and we learn ways of responding um, in, a, in a way that make us shy away and make us turn away from the potential that is within us. And for me to speak from it from such some with such a low voice, <laughs> it's really because I saw that so personally in me by training to do the impossible thing. And I call that my initiation, you know, and I really recommend for every woman and man to feel into what could be your initiation. You know, what is it to you? And the point here isn't that, you know, uh, to run a length of a country or do something which is out of this world, because the, the pathway, when we go from that place where we go beyond the boundary, what we think is possible, that in itself is actually same for everyone. You know, there's a line by the founder of Aikido, Morihei Ueshiba, which goes that there are many paths that lead to the top of Mount Fuji. So there are different ways to get there. And the point is to go into that space that allows us to challenge those habits of inferiorities that we have and use that as our initiation to the full expressed, self-actualized, self-realized uh, human. And with William James, because he was also suicidal at some point around the age of 30. And as the story goes, what I read was that he had kind of gone through a place where he wanted to really end his life, that he was so um, just consumed by, by um, anxiety and lack of life will. And he decided to do an experiment that for a period of time, whenever this dark thought would come, the inferiority, the sadness that I can't do, the desperation, he would simply say one thing, one sentence, which is, I can change. And he would start experimenting with this idea that I can change. And I think that is, I mean, that is something that I also have used at some point because it takes me out of that uh, downward spiral where the thoughts become overpowering and, and overwhelming. So, and it's it, it also touches and leads into through action I can shift my mindset, my attitude. Exactly. There is always a way that we can act our way into feeling and, and being different. I think that's important. We aren't helpless, are we? No, we are not helpless. But sometimes we always can get into like almost like a trance mm. we get into this trance of things aren't working and a trance of 
of of just lack of energy and you know i can see it with sometimes when a dog starts barking and it barks first because there's a reason you know there's an intruder or it gets spooked by something but then sometimes you see that dogs are just like they just get into this like their mindset where they're just like bark 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 and what's needed sometimes is a little like something that's yanks them out of it it's like you say something or you you knock something and the dogs often look like hey whoa what just happened that they come out of this out of this like automation and that's the power of having a power line you know like i can change you know or like whatever it's very personal for everyone to find kind of almost like a central organizing concept you know so we have so many tools it's really just the bottleneck, what I've observed is often that we just forget that we have them and we forget that we have the Caesar. Um, we, yeah. we, get it, we get enclosed in our own subjectivity. Yes. And that's the challenge. And I think when, you know, my, my good friend and mentor, will t- he, he says to me, he says, when you're not alive to facts, you're not living because you're enclosed in your own subjectivity and it's so true and we what you're saying is that we need to develop tools that can kind of immediately pull us out of it um and i i totally agree you know the william james piece i came across him when i got sober through Mm -hmm. this book of religious experiences or religious varieties of different experiences or something and it talked about spirituality and it said Mm. you know um uh spirituality it talked about spirituality of the educational variety not like this burning bush mm. religious style moment and that many of us come to spirituality through an education piece and how how true that is not only with spirituality but with habits and behavior change it's an educational piece mm. um and i think that we need to remember that when we're embarking on any shift, we need to first educate, indoctrinate ourselves into uh, what we're trying to do. And what then occurs in my experience is the journey then goes from my head to my heart and then mm. into implementation. Yeah. And but that's it, the longest road we often take. It is totally. Into the body into the it, heart. It, it, as they say, it's the journey without distance yeah right but um no that was um there was definitely something that i wanted to talk about and and i think we'll we'll wrap it up there amelia i really really loved our time together loved our conversation thank you so much for coming on the ultra habits show i really would like you to let our listeners know where to find you if they want to learn more please Hmm. And thank you, RJ, so much. I love how we share so much, like there's this commonality between how we think about things. So there's really opened a space where we got to jam a bit, you know, on these topics. Um, That's right. That's so, right. And, and thank you to listeners. And I'm very approachable. So I really welcome questions and, you know, ideas and whatever might come to your mind so most easily to um, reach out to me directly is through my website which is you can for example go to sisulab.com so sisu is spelled s-i-s-u sisulab.com and there's a you can contact me and i read the messages that come from there 
And also, I think mostly Instagram, which is my name and last name, Emilia Lahti, uh, dot um, official. But all those links are actually on my website. So maybe just mentioning cecilab.com is the easiest and all the handles. <laughs> so you can choose whatever you want from Facebook to Instagram and Twitter. So. Well, Amelia, I, again, really want to thank you for your time. We'll have to do another session again. I know we have so many different topics that we really could and should dive into. And uh, yeah, I definitely feel a connection with you as soon as we spoke. So um, we will be in touch to be continued. Thank you so much again for your time. Beautiful. Thank you, RJ.